Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic, and I'd like to welcome you to the new year and the new world order. To start off this season, I thought that we could do something a little bit different. It's been a pretty difficult week in the news, and it looks like it's only going to get worse. But we've got a really heartening segment this episode, which comes from Barry Goldstein, the photographer who captured the political conventions for us this summer. We sent him to the Women's March to take portraits of the people in attendance, and so far he's shared 100 with us. You'll be able to look at those portrait galleries soon on the website. But he also asked several of them, black, brown, white, gay, queer, straight, and every age from 12 to 74, why they were marching, and how their activism was born or rekindled by the events of this year. So we'll close out the episode with their voices, which I hope will be inspiring to you. First, though, I'd like to introduce one of our newest blogs, Portrait of the Artist. Every Monday, we're interviewing a different artist about their work. It's linked to the back page in the magazine, American Places, which, as you might guess, showcases landscapes from spots around the country, from Maine to New Mexico and everywhere in between. The artists are picked every week by our associate editor, Margaret Foster, and our editorial assistant, Nolani Kirchner, who is going to talk to us about what goes into making these portraits of the artist. Welcome to the studio, Nolani. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. So I was wondering if you could tell us, first of all, how you pick the artists. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with my background in art, I worked at a gallery for a year, and I think really seeing the process of how a gallery picks an artist as an art historian, it just completely changed how I view artists working on the ground level as opposed to, you know, canonical artists. So I go through gallery websites probably 50% of the time um, because certain galleries, especially if you're looking for regional artists, you know, what we really want to do with this blog is get a good sense of America, all corners, every last bit of it. We want to see artists working in their communities and depicting landscapes that are familiar to them. And I want to pause for a second there. And the reason we want to do that is because this blog ties into the American Places section and the back page, right? Absolutely. Because we don't really have space to talk about the art in the back page. Um, This blog is meant to be the artist's description of their artwork in their own words. So we're not intervening with our own commentary. It's basically an edited transcript of an interview that we do with them or a conversation we have because most of the artists are so excited to talk about their work. It just made sense to let their own voice shine through. We want to see what artists are doing from the Midwest to the West Coast to, you know, the far corners of New England to hopefully, you know, Alaska and Hawaii as well. Like we want to cover it all. We want to cover everything. Um, And I start by looking at galleries in certain states or certain artist guilds in certain states. Um, Some places it's easier to find artists and others you have to do a little bit more digging. So they have to be American. They have to paint landscapes of some kind or places, American places. It wouldn't be good to have an American artist like painting in Canada, for instance. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But are there any other criteria that you have from style to medium? Is there anything in particular that you're looking for? Not at the moment. Um, We are looking for a wide range of media. I mean, typically it has to, it can't be sculpture, it has to be 2D. We're looking at oil paintings, we're looking at oil pastels, we're looking at watercolors, we're looking at mixed media. It's basically everything. And in terms of style, um, we've erred on the side of traditional to begin with, but we would really like to start moving more abstract as time goes on. Um, Because a lot of young artists aren't you know, they're not working in the traditional classical style anymore. They're really pushing the boundaries. They're really exploring um, what landscape means to them. And so don't necessarily stick to the traditional code. So if you're an artist and you're listening to this, you can consider that an open call for submissions. You yes. can <laughs> email us at uh, podcast at org, and I will forward your emails to Nolani. So what are you hoping will come out of these conversations? What What's the first question that you ask these artists when you talk to them? That's a great question. Um, it depends on the artist. I'm really interested in them talking about the place itself. You know, what was the moment that they're trying to capture? Is it imagined? Is it where they was it on plein air? Were they sitting out in nature looking at the scene? Or was it done later from memory? Or is it completely fictional based on a sense of a place that they got. And usually the whole story comes out from there. I usually don't ask follow-up questions. Um, I guess sometimes I ask about process because I think like the technical details get lost in that overwhelming sense of place that they are so excited to talk about. So some artists have expressed a kind of resistance to talking about their work or they're really vague or even misleading about it. Andy Warhol is a really good example of that. So where do you think that comes from and, and have you run into that yet? I personally haven't run into that. I think Margaret has. Um, One of the interviews that she recently conducted, 
the artist talked about how he used to be a docent at a museum and people would ask him questions and he said that he was horrible at the job because in his own words, what is there to say about art? Like, what can you say about art that the art doesn't say for itself? Um, And I, I think that that's really poignant. I think that the reason people are drawn to art as opposed to writing or music is because there is something just very visceral and something very natural that they can convey that they're feeling without putting it into words. Like, it's their medium for a reason. It's visual for a reason. It's supposed to be this immediate, almost <gasps> visceral. Yeah, visceral, like resonance. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be like a, a resonance. Like, you feel it in your core. Like, yes, you see something, you feel an immediate connection to it. I think painters now are also trying to evoke that same feeling, that sense of place. So if you could pick any artist and interrogate them about their work, obviously they would have to be alive. Who would it be? I know you're picking the artists already, so in a way you're <laughs> picking your favorites, but if fame or geography weren't an issue, who would it be? Oh my god. Right now I would say I would say Kiki Smith. She's not working within the genre of landscape, but she is a feminist artist and she looks at fairy tales with a feminist angle and she looks at I mean not just fairy she looks at a wide range of things with just a feminist angle and she works in a bunch of different mediums from sculpture to works on paper to drawings to I can't even remember if she does paintings but I have always felt a very immediate connection to her work and I really love her so <laughs> definitely Kiki Smith <laughs> Fun fact the last landscape we featured in our winter issue, an oil pastel by Jennifer Cavan called Leading Back, was actually purchased by one of our readers. So if you see a painting or a drawing in the back that you love, it could be yours. And now here's a less fun fact. Our new president lives in a White House in Washington, D.C., but he also runs a huge hotel down the street. And that hotel is a little microcosm of President Trump's myriad conflicts of interest and his vast business empire, which have been covered in the press pretty much nonstop since the election. Though we can't quite see the hotel from our office window, we know it very well. It used to be the old post office. And even more poignantly, given the news this week about slashing arts funding, the old post office used to be the home of the National Endowment for the Humanities. One of our contributors, Amanda Coulson-Hurley, has a personal connection with the building. She is a freelance journalist who writes about design and architecture, so we asked her to take us on a little tour of 1100 Pennsylvania Avenue. I'm here with Amanda Coulson-Hurley at Freedom Plaza in Washington, D.C. We have a pretty nice view of the old post office, now the Trump International Hotel. Uh, So, Amanda, what's the story behind the post office? When was it built and when did it stop being a post office? It was built in 1899 and it was actually, uh, I believe, part of an early effort to uh, revitalize Pennsylvania Avenue, which in the 19th century was very different to the uh, kind of stately avenue that we see in front of us. It was pretty seedy. And um, there was a feeling that it wasn't uh, very dignified. And and so 
the old post office uh, was built as a postal sorting facility. Um, it's built in the Richardsonian Romanesque style, which is uh, quite grandiose, uh, quite ornate. There are a lot of uh, Romanesque arches everywhere and little turrets jutting out of the corners of the building. And the clock tower is... Uh, very commanding. It's uh, the third tallest tower in the city, I believe. But by the time that this building opened, that architectural style had really gone out of fashion. And people have uh, really been, were trying to kind of demolish the building or put it out of use from uh, very soon after it opened. A lot of the technology that it incorporated too, I, I believe was obsolete by the time that it opened. So it really didn't work as a mail sorting facility for, for very long. But the building itself is, it's huge. It'd be so hard to demolish. It looks like a little castle. So the the old post office, after many attempts, uh, you know, calls for its demolition, was actually the subject of a pretty impassioned preservation campaign, I believe in the 1970s, uh, by, you know, local preservationists and architects uh, and and arts patrons who who argued that it it really was a spectacular building. And um, if you've ever been to the interior atrium, it really, it really is. In the early 1980s, it was renovated. A couple of small government agencies went into uh, the offices uh, above the atrium, and then the uh, ground floor was turned into uh, a lobby with like a food court and some shops. And you could also go up the clock tower and get a really great view of downtown DC. The nice thing about the view up there is, unlike going up the Washington Monument, you can actually see the Washington Monument from the old post office tower. So that's kind of the the secret of why, you know, some people prefer that as the great downtown Washington view. Also, the Washington Monument is closed until 2019. That is true. That is true. And and at the moment, the clock tower, uh, the observation deck in the clock tower is also closed, but it is set to reopen early this year. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's make our way inside and see. We can't enter on Pennsylvania Avenue because that's cordoned off. It is actually not supposed to be per the uh, the plan that um, everyone agreed to. When I say everyone, the Trump Organization, which operates the hotel and holds the lease, the General Services Administration, the government landlord, and the National Capital Planning Commission, which is a sort of design body that has oversight over these things. So the plan that they all agreed on was that the really grand arched entrance here on Pennsylvania Avenue would be reinstated as the main pedestrian entrance uh, for the hotel, for the old post office. And the last times I've been down here, they have not been holding to that plan. And when I asked the Trump Organization, they said they don't comment on matters of security. I don't know how long it'll go on, but it's to me, it's a real pity because, uh, you know, Washington is a city with uh, a lot of security architecture. We have bollards everywhere and Jersey walls that, you know, are are constantly presenting these visual symbols of of obstruction. And, um, you know, it looks a little bit militarized. So... You know, this is sad to see two rows of metal fencing kind of almost perpetually along this block, perhaps. It's like yet more signs of kind of Fortress America around us. Ugh, yeah. Let's go around the side then. All right, so we've made our way down the side and now we're facing the presidential ballroom. What's with what's up with that? 
So the presidential ballroom is a new addition. It's actually an annex, you know, a brand new annex to the historic building. And it's it's funny, I'm, I'm kind of laughing as I look at it because I was just reading about how Donald Trump, uh, he likes ballrooms, but he really hates formal dinners in tents, even in the really kind of nice fancy tents that they use, you know, uh, at White House state dinners. He thinks that that's really trashy. He's said this in the media many times. And he thinks that, you know, there should be something more dignified, a permanent structure, you know, more dignified for hosting state dinners and the like. So this is the type of ballroom that I think he'd like there to be at the White House. And he has actually offered before to build uh, a ballroom at the White House. He actually offered the Obama administration a ballroom uh, at, on the White House grounds with his own money. They declined. So I think it's possible he'll try to do that as president. Or perhaps that he would suggest that, you know, state dinners be held down the road at the brand new presidential ballroom of his lovely hotel. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure some people would raise eyebrows at that, but that doesn't necessarily mean he wouldn't he wouldn't ask or he wouldn't succeed in, uh, in making that happen. So um, that's, that's definitely something I think is a possibility. And it gets at that conflict of interest again. Right, right yes. All right, let's go inside. Amanda, did you spend a lot of time here as a kid? It's because my father worked here for many years. He uh, worked for one of the government agencies that was housed in this building until they uh, moved out a couple of years ago um, to make way for the renovation into the hotel. Um, but uh, it, I, I remember the building very fondly. I mean, uh, I remember my father at one point have, having an office in one of those uh, little turrets. So he had this sort of great... Uh, a great view onto, uh, you know, onto the street, and um, uh, you know, you would walk out of the offices and have this wonderful, wonderful view over the atrium and over all the crowds milling and the food court below. Uh, and it was uh, it was a really fun place to visit as a child. And we would have lunch in the in the food court that was here, and then sometimes we'd go up up the clock tower and and go uh, go go to the observation deck. So it was a great great place to visit as a child and I always felt really special that my my dad worked here and that I got I got to come into this wonderful this wonderful old building and all right let's move into the atrium and see what remains of the old post office building it's very light filled and there are these old metal archways it looks like they might be original do you are they yeah, the trusses are original and they speak to the, you know, un, I'd say unusual architecture or unusual function of this building because it has this very kind of grand Romanesque style ornamentation and looks a little bit like a castle on the outside, but you come inside and it looks more like a factory with these big trusses because it was this this postal facility. And I, I believe uh, an early review, and not a very positive review in the New York Times, Times, right when it opened, or along the around the time that it opened, kind of captures that well. And that somebody, the reviewer, described it as a cross between a cathedral and a cotton mill, which I thought was just kind of perfect. But um, I mean, that shows you the attitude toward the building at the time, which was pretty negative. People thought it was a little bit of a like a Frankenstein monster of different styles and functions. Um, but uh, you know, and, and I think that kind of comes out to me now when I'm I'm looking at a, a massive crystal chandelier just dripping with crystals but that's been affixed onto one of these metal trusses which is not something you often see so 
So what would your uh, review of the interior of the Trump International Hotel be? Cross between a... (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, A cross between Mar-a-Lago and... Macy's? (laughs) Macy's? <laughs> That's not quite right, but something like that. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's not actually quite as, as opulent or as uh, quite as glitzy, I'd say, as, as I had worried and I think as maybe some people had feared. I mean, definitely you see a lot of gold. There's kind of blue velvet everywhere and, and these, these massive chandeliers, but... Um, you know, there are definitely touches of the um, some of the historic details, although others have been covered up. So um, I guess I think it's kind of okay. I don't feel like, uh, you know, looking at it now that the, the building has been terribly disrespected, but it also, I, I don't think it's like as sensitive a restoration as maybe um, might have been possible. So... And this actually used to be a food court when you visited, is that right? Uh, yeah, and I actually think maybe the main level of the food court was below us. Um, and there are steps down there. And uh, if you go down there, they're like meeting rooms now. Um, but but I think um, basically we're standing either in or over right what was this big food court. Uh, and it was a very... Um, uh, unfancy type of place. It was like a little mini mall inside here where you had, you know, you could get frozen yogurt, you could get burritos, you could get Chinese food. And it was very popular um, because this is such a huge space. Um, It was very popular with like, uh, you know, school groups who were doing tours of DC. Um, And I, I think it's kind of a shame. It was it really fell on hard times the last several years. It was it was never fancy. It always I think some of the businesses struggled outside of peak season, you know. Um, but uh, it was just uh, an, a kind of place for everyday people, ordinary tourists and locals, to just grab a quick bite to eat and in and look up into this kind of great, you know, into this great space. Um, and, uh, you know, now, now we've got the hotel, which is open to the public, this, this hotel lobby, but, you know, they serve... $20 cocktails. So it's not really the same thing. Not really as accessible. One of the deep ironies of the various attempts to get this building renovated way back when was that in I read in 2004, a women's museum was trying to get opened here and it just never made its way through Congress, which was kind of funny, I thought. And now, you know, look who's running it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, another kind of irony to me is that when the government agencies were based here, they were the uh, two small agencies that oversee the uh, awarding of grants to people working in the arts and the humanities, so, so to artists, writers, scholars. Uh, and those same agencies uh, were nearly shut down and, and uh, really, uh, really had their funding slashed under Congress in the mid-90s. And the kind of person... Uh, really who 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 was uh, leading that charge was Newt Gingrich um, and it's funny because he's kind of back back at Trump's side you know now uh, back in the ascendant so um, yeah that's that's not something I would have expected but politics is full of surprises you know <laughs> indeed as it is well thank you so much Amanda for this little dive into Washington history well thanks for having me this was fun
And now, as promised, here's something cheerful. Voices to carry you into the next four years. Voices of solidarity and activism and people who are like you or people who are not like you. People who attended the Women's March on Washington, which was historic, to say the least, and which marks the beginning of what Nina Simone would call a revolution. As a rural farmer, I am pro-diversity, anti-monoculture, and excited about the crumbling of white supremacy. As a physician, as a woman, as a Hispanic woman, I feel like I have something to say. I thought I had said it when I voted, but it wasn't heard. I want to say that we have rights and that they are not going to be taken away from us. I'm extremely worried about the country, about the people of this country, especially people of color and people that are immigrants as well as women. I'm very worried about Supreme Court nominations, the environment, and women's rights. Everybody has a right to love, has a right to decide what they want to do with their body. I don't believe that the government should have any say or control in those things. I'm originally from Russia, and when I first came here, I was an immigrant. I was actually a legal immigrant when I first came here. This country provides hope for so many people, and I feel like that might be taken away. I know that it's really common in these situations to say that I'm going because I have uh, a mother, I have a mother-in-law, I have a wife, I have a daughter. But actually, I think it's more than that. I think it's also important for myself to support women's rights because when any human being is demeaned and lessened, it lessens all of us. I want to send a message. I want it to be really clear um, to the president and to the Republicans in charge that they are being watched and that we're paying attention and that they can't just try and turn the time back on things that we've worked really hard for over a number of years to improve our country. Really, I was physically sick. I'm going to have to be active just to counteract my fear and loathing. I have to thank Trump. This sounds strange, but I have to thank him for awakening activism in me. I've always volunteered locally and taken care of my family and friends, but I've never, I never thought I would march on Washington. I have a friend who is an African-American woman, and she wants me to go to protect her. She's worried about marching, and she really wants a white woman. And so I said, I'm it. I'm, I'm going. I think there's been a permission given, I guess, to people to be uncivilized on the other side. And so I think my friend's concern is a real concern. I have the conviction to be in the march, and I want to use it as an example for my children and grandchildren. When you believe in something, you need to do something. The election was a slap in the face, as if I had been sleeping not completely comfortable. Like I knew things weren't perfect, but I thought they were kind of okay. And I was slapped in the face, and I'm disoriented, but I'm wide awake, and I'm trying to find my footing, and I thought that the little ways 
I was being active before, which were pretty minor and very local, was enough. And I don't think they are enough. I've spent years being kind of apathetic or sitting by the side and just either complaining or bemoaning. And, and I feel like I need to get involved. I'm just so devastated over what has happened to our country and feel that we have to stand up and put into motion what we believe in. For as long as I can remember, I felt that women don't get nearly the respect that they deserve and we should be striving for more dignity and respect for all people than less dignity and respect. I think that democracy works because the ordinary people take action and I think that this is a way for me to take action and be active in our democratic system because I'm not old enough to vote yet. This country has taken a turn for the more violent recently and that scares me. I thought election night was going to be a big blow for feminism and, it, and as it turned out it felt like a big smack in the face for feminism. So I guess one of the, the silver linings of the way the election went is that it rekindled my interest in the state of feminism now. One of the things on my mind a lot uh, coming out of this election is that of the, the white women who voted in the election, 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. And I feel, as a white woman, um, that we have a, a particular responsibility and burden to show up and keep showing up and keep trying to um, expose and push back and make as difficult as possible what Donald Trump and his cabinet picks so far uh, seem to have in store for the nation and for the world. We've made a lot of progress in terms of rights, health care, a lot of things that I believe in. I'm also a type 1 diabetic, so I'm dependent on the Affordable Care Act, and I would be pretty devastated if that went away. And I matter, and, and the things that I care about matter. Never in my lifetime did I ever, ever think that we would be moving backwards as women, as a culture, as a society, and I feel that we are, and we need to stand up collectively against it. I thought my marching days were over, because <laughs> yeah, I spent my youth in the 60s in Mississippi and Virginia and Georgia. I know that these kinds of gatherings can make a difference. I'm here to tell you about the destruction of all the evil that will have to end. It will, oh yeah, it will end. Don't you know, don't you All right. It will end. Well, all right. Well, all right. Thank you to the people who lent us their voices for this episode. Courtney Grimes-Sutton, Martha Swan, Jane Hawk, Maeve Brommer, Michelle Marin, Jeannie Connor, Leah Vincent and Anya Pesh, Sherry D. Haas, Marinette Elysia, Alexander Davis, Kathy Chinowski, Pam Caulfield, 
Rosemarie Pelletier, Lisa Nelson, Laura Christensen, Hope Nelson, and Isabel Holmes. I hope your feet weren't too sore from marching. That's it for Smarty Pants this week. Until next time, take care, stay sharp, and listen to some Nina Simone. It's not as simple as...